All right, so let's, uh, anybody have a psalm they're just dying to do? We can go off the cuff, and I'm, I've got some decongestant, so that should be fun. I don't think we have. I was going to do eight. Have we done eight yet? No? Let's go to eight. The only reason I chose eight is because eight is sort of a happy psalm. And last week was sort of, uh, actually last week, if you read it the right way, it's a very happy psalm. Well, I keep a list of the ones I've done, and eight wasn't one of them. December 5th? Well, what did he have to tell you? Tell me what he told you, and we'll see if he got it right. Yeah, it sort of is. Yeah? It's all about what event in Christ's life? It's all about the incarnation. Wow. <laughs> no, we'll do, we'll do something else. No, because we... Uh, no, let's, let's go to a different one. We'll go to a different one. That's fine. That's fine. Psalm 34. Okay, Psalm 34. Let's see how the Holy Spirit moves us. Just for the record, since when Kirby walks in, um, I did prepare today, but the vicar stole mine in December, and he didn't tell me that he did this one. So it's actually not my fault. I wasn't unprepared. Just for when Kirby walks in, because she's been calling my wife and saying that I'm unprepared. So I just want everybody to know that I was, when Kirby walks in, I just want to make sure, here's Psalm 8. In fact, Kirby, you can have this. You can go home and frame this. I'll give you my notes in Psalm 8, just so you know I was prepared. On that happy note, let's go to Psalm 34, okay? Psalm 34. How's, that, how's Lent working out for all of you? Going okay? Wow, I'm glad the discipline has really hammered you a bit. What'd you guys? How many were here for Ash Wednesday, the night service? Okay. For the record, just for Kirby when she walks in, I'm not unprepared. Anybody else have a song they'd like to do? Maybe we should just call it eight. No, we, we already done it. Let's keep going. Eight. A hundred. You like eighteen? Okay. All right. Psalm 100. Oh, boy. <laughs> Psalm 100. I was going to ask, okay, so you all, how many of you came to the evening service on Ash Wednesday? I actually thought that was an extraordinarily beautiful service. The darkness, the candles, the music. Screaming Isaac, yeah, I heard that. Audrey sort of sprinting across the chancel, that was good. It was sort of a crossing pattern to try to find Emma. I know. I... Good thing she didn't commune with Emma, because she may be sick today. So, yeah, Emma got sick that night, all night. All over Daddy, which was great. Ten o'clock, I'm drinking a glass of wine, and I fall asleep on the couch, and I wake up to all over me. No, she threw up... Oh, yeah, she did throw up once in the Aldi, and she always says, when we go by, that's my throw-up store. Um, she threw up once in the Aldi after she had cupcakes at school, so it was chocolate cupcakes all over. And actually, I wasn't there. May the Queen of Angels be praised. Uh, Abby was, and Abby was turned around because she needed to buy bags, and she'd forgotten her bags, which teased my wife because she's sort of a green woman. And uh, she's buying bags, and the woman behind her says, uh, your daughter is vomiting <laughs> all over and, of course, at Aldi, if they don't, like, let, if you have to pay for a basket, they're certainly not going to clean up, clean up the vomit, right? 
I know. You have to clean up your own vomit. And just, you had to buy your own bag. Yeah. Abby took her, Abby took Emma's, Emma's shirt off, and the woman said, uh, Abby said, can I have a bag? She said, yeah, for 20 cents. <laughs> so, it was a good experience. So, uh, yeah, so then, no, we, we do shop there because the prices are still good. <laughs> uh, exactly right, yep, yep. So, I don't know what we were talking about. Psalm 100. The evening service, yes. It was very beautiful, I thought. Wow, glad everybody's listening. <laughs> no. What are you going to do when you get to heaven? Oh, well, I don't know. Uh, yeah, we do incense. We don't do incense that often because people... I, I w- yep, that's what I was getting to. I was, gonna, I was trying to preface, I was trying to soften the, co- the, the question a little bit. Soften the question. But uh, you're, you're exactly right. It can be difficult for people. Although, just so you know, we use the same brand that's used at hospitals and nursing homes. Because that's what the church does. Uh, it might, although we have some people who get bad migraines, and if you go up and look, the very first fan is, I mean, I don't know who put them in, it was before me, is directly under a light. So when it goes, the light flickers. It doesn't flicker, I mean, exactly, and someone was in there and within about 30 seconds was ready to puke, because they said, it's just terrible, I can't, that's why we don't turn them on, we have a number of people who are like that. Um, but you're right, it probably would help it a bit. Well, it's like a haze. It doesn't kind of have a place to get out. What works the best is like during the spring, if we do it at Easter, or even up in the balcony. No one can see it but the top window. If you can sort of open those, then the then it sort of moves out a little bit. Yeah. Although the choir's up there. That's why Mueller moved him down to the East Room because the choir couldn't breathe. So Mueller said one time there were people, you know, choir members dropping like flies, which, you know, you start off with an octet and suddenly you have no one left. Um, Whatever. So, uh, yeah, we do it at the high feast days, but we don't do it that often. I mean, we probably do it, we used to do it actually more. We probably used to do it five or six times a year. Now we probably do it twice a year. Christmas Eve, the late service, always. And usually Easter Sunday, I'm sorry, three times a year. Christmas Eve, Easter Vigil, so the night before Easter, and then Easter Sunday, the late service. Yeah, yep. Yep, yep. But we do everything we can. Like, we've tried different things. We, you know, there's some incense that smells better, but we don't use it because it's not hypoallergenic. So we use, we actually went over to Wheaton Religious and said, what's the stuff that everybody uses? And they said, this brand they use at hospitals and nursing homes because old folks have oxygen and masks, and they're okay with it. So we try. I know that. Yep. That's, that's perfectly fine. Yeah, I know, I know. Although we're happy to. We're not doing anything right now. <laughs> Psalm 100. Psalm 100. 
Psalm, yes, it is a short one, so get your next one ready. Psalm 100. Just, uh, actually, let's read it out of this one. It's probably more beautiful. Just listen and see sort of what comes to mind. You know, the uh, monks have a very ancient practice called Lectio Divina. Anybody ever heard of that? Lectio Divina, or sometimes, you know, actually, you might have been involved in this, some like African Bible studies. You've heard of these, yeah. The, the point is, you listen to a text, and then you reflect upon what you hear. And so monks even will spend uh, oftentimes an hour or two a day in Lectio Divina, or sort of holy reading. And what that means is you read a text, not to just read a text and get information in your head, you read a text to hear how the text speaks. Um, and oftentimes it's read aloud. Um, remember, uh, uh, the church fathers used to say, and take this for what it's worth. I mean, I think there's some truth to this. The church fathers used to say, you know, a, a, a pagan couldn't just pick up a Bible and start reading and become a Christian. There's something to the word being spoken. It has to get inside your ear. Remember St. Paul says, how can they believe unless someone preaches, right? And so there's this great bit from Luther where Luther, even in his study, when he was hiding out in the castle, when he would read his, his Bible in the morning, he actually wouldn't just read it. He would actually sort of pace back and forth and read it aloud because the word has to get inside your ear. That's, of course, the enunciation, right? Uh, so monks will oftentimes read this aloud to let the word get in their ear. But just listen to this and see what comes to mind. Acclaim the Lord, all men on earth. Worship the Lord in gladness. Enter his presence with, with songs of exaltation. Know that the Lord is God. He has made us and we are his. His people, the flock of his shepherds. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good and his love is everlasting. His constancy endures to all generations. Okay, And I'll read it to you in the, in the, in the one you might be more familiar with, ESV. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. Or as some say, we are not ourselves. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the, steadfast, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Okay? What do you hear in there? What are some what are some images that come to mind? Good? <clears throat> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jen, I'm sorry it was so bad. We hope you come back next week. Okay? Oh. Ask for Vicodin. It helps. All right, happy. Uh, yeah, no enemies. What else do you hear? Yeah, in fact, you have that in Psalm 8, of course, when it talks about he made him a little lower than the angels. So uh, God is great. Uh, man is small. <laughs> yeah, uh, yes. This is... Uh, this right here is a gospel word. It's a good thing. It's a thing that's for you and not against you. Okay? Yeah. Right. Yes. Uh, in fact, 
His love is forever. What does he say? Love is everlasting. What does your translation say there? Not because I'm quizzing you, I just can't remember. Yeah. I can never remember if faithfulness has two L's or one. Thank you. Faithfulness to all generations. Now, um, we'll cross-reference this with Exodus 20, because okay, that'll be important. Um, his love endures forever. It is, some say, eternal. Which means what? Everlasting is a bit different than eternal. How is everlasting different than eternal? Yeah, everlasting means there's a starting point, and then it goes on and on forever and ever. Amen. So, for instance, um, Jesus with divine nature and human nature is everlasting. It starts at a point, Mary's womb, and even today, does Jesus have his body? Yeah, it goes on forever and ever, amen. So when you get to heaven, you'll be able to walk up, will you be able to touch Jesus on the nose? Yeah, of course, you do right now. When the, I almost said when the priest holds up, when the pastor holds up the body of Christ, right there is Jesus looking at you. Okay? So that's everlasting. What's eternal? Eternal means, yeah, exactly, no beginning, no ending. And in the scriptures you have eternal, um, like Melchizedek is eternal, without beginning, without ending. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is eternal, without beginning, without ending. So if love is eternal, what does that mean? He loved you long before he created you, and he'll lo love you long after you are dead. Right? So it's not, there's, and this is very important, there's not a starting point to his love. It's not like he says, once I die on the cross, finally I love you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If people say my marriage is bad and you say just endure it, what does that mean? Suffer through it, right? Yeah. Good. Tolerate it, right. So his love, there is something about it, uh, it, it it's pain, I mean, it's hard for him at times, right? Yes, good. Keep going. What else do you hear in there? Yeah. Yep, good. So, uh, yep, and what that, what that is, uh, yeah, and partly what that's a reference to is when the priest would enter, you know, the temple, uh, he would ultimately, the high priest went into where? One time a year. Holy of Holies. So it's sort of a reference to entering the gates and going into his court, sort of into the Holy of Holies, the place of the presence, right? And this should remind you, this is what I was getting at, what does this ultimately remind you of? Just think about this. Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> you didn't just say that, did you? I'm kidding. <laughs> Right, I'm not. <laughs> what does this remind you of? Enter his, 
yeah, there's a reason why the altar is sacred space. It's demarcated. So you've got this, you've got this altar rail around the outside. If you ever go to, uh, you ever go to Russia, you were in Russia, Holly. When you were in Russia, what if, what would happen if you would have walked up after the service to grab the, the priest's sermon off the pulpit? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There's we we as Americans have a very strange sense of what holy space is. Partly, I think that's due to the fact that what you just said. We actually believe, in some sense, everyone is a priest, and by that I mean a priest who's been given to stand in holy space. You're exactly right. You've been given to say prayers and offer sacrifices, priests, but a priest in sort of the capital P sense, okay? But in in different countries, in Russia. Um, in fact, I think they said in Russia, really the priests and the deacons even set, they're like the altar guild. No one enters holy space, right? So there's a sense of Psalm 100 in that sort of practice. But you have it here. You don't normally, in the normal course of things, now some of you work for the altar guild, I get all that, but in the normal course of things, you wouldn't enter the sanctuary up here. This is the sanctuary proper. You wouldn't just sort of walk in and stand at the altar. In fact, I, I, I heard confession one time and I walked in, and the person was praying right here. Inside the rail, standing at the altar. Now, in some sense, that's very nice. This person wanted to be close to the presence. In another respect, that's not their space. That's the Lord's space, right? So um, you have this image in the psalm of entering the gates. It's why there's, you know, you ever go to a Lutheran church where when it comes time for the Eucharist, they come up and they swing the door shut? Exactly. They, they say, this isn't space for you to enter now, right? These are gates. Part of it, uh, but part of it is you don't go beyond that space, okay? So there's the sense of entering his gates and then his courts with praise. His court, of course, is obviously the altar, okay? Yeah. Yeah, right, right. You, your point is, is good, and the point you're trying to make is, or I think you're trying to make is, there are always multiple points of reference within the Psalms. So it can mean any number of things. In fact, the great, the great, the great Lutheran mistake was to say that every Old Testament sort of picture only had one point of reference. But we don't have the temple anymore. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't think anything you've said is wrong. All I'm saying is I think there can be multiple meanings to this. So once you're inside the church, here's the thing. It's got a different meaning for someone who doesn't go to church than it does for someone who does. So you're right. Getting in is part of the deal. And then once you're in, then it has a whole, then the broad range of possibilities opens up again. Yeah. Yep, right. Yeah. Yeah. Backwards? Oh, yeah, okay. Really? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And it doesn't, and here's what you can't, what you shouldn't be seeing is that somehow this psalm is saying that this is not your space. It is your space, but as Luther says, within the context of your space, there are givers and receivers. Yeah. Yes, right. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, the real tearing of the temple, the temple curtain is not in the temple. It's Jesus on the cross. Remember John 1, he says, the word became flesh and templed among us, or tabernacled among us. So the real the real tearing of the temple curtain, which you have to look at first before you look at the temple temple, you know, is Jesus on the cross. And when the temple curtain is torn in two, what comes out? Which, yes, for John, is his institution of the sacraments. So uh, the real tearing of the temple curtain doesn't mean that you're now somehow a priest. They didn't sort of banish the priestly roles. What it means is you have access to the mysteries. So what was always hidden behind the temple curtain, you now have access to. This is why why the writer to the Hebrews, who's utterly sacrificial, it's the new Leviticus, says, "Let let us go up, let us attend, let us enter in and receive, as it says, Jesus who's put himself into holy things. And the holy things are bread and wine and water and word. So the tearing of the temple curtain doesn't mean that you're a priest. You are priesthood of all believers. What it means is you have access to the mysteries. Now to figure out the mysteries, you have to look at the real tearing of the temple curtain, which is Jesus on the cross. So all it means is you have access to the body and the blood. Yeah. Yes, and there's a great hymn in the supplement called The Infant Priest Was Holy Born. And there's one line that says, uh, his unveiled presence now we see is at the rail on bended knee. Okay? That's what you get to see. It's Jesus full blast in body and blood in the host and the chalice. And you're actually, you know, you get a chance to partake of that. Yeah.
Yeah. The bread of the presence. Yeah. Yeah. And then they, you know, then there was some acts of, you know, sprinkling blood and that sort of thing. But yeah, the, the bread of the presence was given to the priest at that point. Right. There are um, there are multiple reasons for it. Um, first thing is, which she just said, which is it's called uh, concomitant, which means both things are present in one. So the body and the blood are present in the host. Now, here's the thing. That's not wrong. If you have Jesus' body, you have his blood. So there will be times in life when you might be extraordinarily ill or extraordinarily whatever it may be, and we will, for the sake of of wanting to give you the Eucharist, give you just the host. Um, usually it's just the host. Um, oftentimes people have an aversion to the alcohol for some reason. And I would, I would at least propose to you that that's better than taking grape juice because what the Lord uses is wine. Now we've sort of found ways around that, but there are people who, I mean, if you're a terrible alcoholic and you're on medication right away, any touch of alcohol will make you, you know, be sick. So there is a time when this, this sort of emergency is, is allowable because the body and the blood are both present in the host. Um, the other thing is, you remember at the time of the Reformation, uh, people were going around, followers of Luther, trying to bring the chalice back, but much too quickly. And there's this great line from Luther where he says, for the sake of their consciences, take the chalice back. Don't give it to them. They're not ready for it. So at least you, if you read that sort of pastorally, what it means is the host, take this right away, the host is better than nothing, and you can't sort of force the chalice on people if they're not ready for it. If Luther true, well, it went away in the first place, uh, primarily, I think it was practical. It was, we don't want people to sort of spill it. It was a very, it, was a, it, wasn't, it wasn't so much theological, it was, we don't want to get it all over the place, and we believe the body and blood are present in the host. And you remember, I mean, think about in the early church. Now, they gave both kinds in the early church. But up to the Reformation, you know, sort of what kind of people were coming to church, what they were doing, what their lives were like. I mean, you didn't want them, just for the sake of cleanliness, to get up and sort of touch things. I mean, they were coming from all, all over the place. So I think it was very, and then it morphed into a withholding it, like it's only for the priest. That was never the intention. In fact, if you read the church fathers, when the people are baptized and they go to their first Eucharist, they get uh, the host, they get the chalice, and then they also get a bit of honey and milk because it reminds them of the promised land. The good news is um, more and more Catholic churches are going back to both kinds. In fact, I just saw the other day a mass from Notre Dame in South Bend at the cathedral there, the basilica there. One, it was stunning to me, they had one priest who was about 60, who's the rector. All the other priests were probably 25. He chanted everything, um, incense. And they, they spanned out a scene of the congregation. This is a regular Sunday mass. The place was packed. Now it is a basilica, and you've got the university there, but it's packed. 
with young people and old people and everybody's there. Really? Yeah. If it's the same guy, I actually heard this guy's sermon. It was unbelievably good. In fact, they posted, and I took it because you could, I mean, and I won't do this, of course, but you could re-preach this thing, and you'd all say, who wrote that, Luther? I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> or Fort Wayne. But I was stunned. I was stunned at when he went for the consecration. They had probably 12 chalices up there because they're going to take it down and commune everybody. Now, some Catholics don't want it because that's not what they were raised on and whatever, but they've encouraged people to take both kinds. And even, I can remember this, I was telling somebody this on Sunday, when I went to Catholic high school, uh, the priest would come in in September every year. We had mass at school once or twice a month. And he would vest and show the kids everything. Like, here's a chasuble, now this is why I wear it. Here's a stole, here are vestments. This is why I wear a cassock all the time. And I remember him saying to us, you may not be raised in a parish that takes both kinds, but I would encourage you throughout your four years here to begin that practice. Okay, so uh, partly it was not to spill. That was a practical reason. They believed it was in the host. It's okay. It's not best. It's sort of like if I can give you ten presents for Christmas, you'd want all ten and not just one, right? I mean, yeah, the gospel is always more. But one is enough, but two is better. Um, and the other thing is then, it's trying to be, people are trying to restore it now. Intinction. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, right. That is, uh, that's, again, that's one of these sort of emergency situation practices often. Now, some churches do it all the time, and the reason they do it is, I think, they don't want to use individual glasses, which is a very noble cause, but they realize some people won't take the chalice, so this is sort of the halfway point. Um, oftentimes, it's for people who are sick. I was in a congregation once where they didn't have an individual glasses. All they had were the chalices. Everybody took the chalice every week. They were catechized well, but people who were very, very ill and didn't want to give offense would just intink and take it. But you're right, the practical thing is when you have 100 people doing that, and little kids doing it, and whatever, who knows where it's going? <laughs> you know, so that's the practical. If you have one person, I bet you if we have one or two people a year who do that once or twice, that's probably the most we have. But some churches, but it's a bit like having a big host at, at, at you know, when you snap that bad boy and it goes all over, what are you going to do? These are practical questions. Yeah, I, well, I, I actually, I actually here's the well, here's the funny thing. For those of you who are worried about germs, and I'm sure someone will say this isn't this isn't true, and maybe it's not. But there was actually someone just did a study about two years ago that they it was a medical student who did a study and examined the individual glasses and the chalice, and found that there were more germs on the individual glasses than the chalice. For this reason, think about how many hands handle those individual glasses in the getting it out of the cabinet putting it in the thing, holding it while you put the wine in. Then, you know, oh, one tipped over, so we got to put it back. You've had six or seven sets of hands on that, and then you go up and you grab it with your own hands, which may be dirty, and drink it. The other thing is uh, they said that metal and wine 
kill like 99.9% .9 of the germs. Water, or I'm not water, wine and glass, you don't get the germs killed. Yeah, somewhat, yeah. So it's kind of, yeah. Yeah, I would say take the chat. One, the Lord has a perfect healthy body, so that's the best way to get over your cold. And two, you know, you're not going to, you'd make more people sick by drinking the individual glass, having the acolyte grab it and set it down, and having three altar guild ladies, you know, they're all going to have your cold. But I, I do take the point that it gives offense, but you know what? The Lord doesn't say not take it when you're, when you're sick, so take it, and it's all going to be okay. You've been waiting a long time, though, so I want to take your question. Body, blood, bread, and wine. Yep, yep. Yep. Right. Yeah, good question. Very good question. And a very honest question, too. Um, you all are sitting back in your seats now. See, this is like attack mode. They're all getting ready, okay? Right now they're thinking, I hope he says something we can pounce on him. It's going to be great. No, I'm kidding. The old... And by, by old, I mean like past hundred years. What Lutherans often thought was that, which is we're very different from Rome, and here's how we're different. It didn't have a whole lot to do with they sacrifice their mass and we don't. It was they believe the bread and wine become the body and the blood. We believe there's body and blood, and now here's Lutheran code, in, with, and under the bread and the wine. Okay? So somehow it's hidden in there. So when you go up, what you see is bread, but somehow Jesus is in there. That's sort, of the, that's sort of the Lutheran way of thinking. Now, unfortunately, that's, that's not faithful, first and foremost, to the scriptures. And it's also not faithful to Luther. And so I'll tell you first the scriptures. Whenever Jesus says something is something, it always is. It always is. So it's not like he says, um, uh, it's not like he says at creation, let there be light, and there's kind of light, but there's kind of not. It does become light. It is light. He speaks and it happens. He says uh, to Lazarus, come out. He comes out fully alive again. There's no halfway point. Like, he's kind of dead, he's kind of alive. Would not the same thing then apply at the Eucharist when he says, this is my body? Not, it's my body and bread, or it's my blood and wine. It is my body. And the church fathers would often look at the wedding at Cana for, for an example of this. They would say, Cyril of Jerusalem says, would not he who turned water to wine also be able to turn wine to blood? That's a, that's a valid question. Now, it's rhetorical, which means he's saying, yes, he is. But, and, and then for Luther, if you read Luther's great, one of his more conservative writings on the Eucharist, in, it's in what's called the Babylonian Captivity of the Church. It's his three books. And this is what all Lutherans reference, the Babylonian, this is his great work. He says in there, we're not opposed to transubstantiation. The bread becomes body. We're opposed to describing it, explaining it. The reason Rome has had such trouble and the reason we don't agree with them fully is because what they tried to do is intellectually explain what happens at the Eucharist. It's Thomas Aquinas. It's all these people who are great rationalists. They said, how can we explain what happens here? Well, there are substance and accidents. That's the way of describing transubstantiation. There's bread, 
and it's still there, but you don't quite see it, and then it becomes the body, but you still see the accidents, which means you still see this little host, but really it's body. What Luther says is, take the Lord at his word. He says it's body, and it is his body. And so then since Luther, Lutherans have written, I mean, you can ask Pastor Bruzek, who did his dissertation on Chemnitz. Chemnitz is this way. Gerhardt is this way. Even Lutherans today are this way. There is a change at the Eucharist. The bread becomes the body. The wine becomes the blood. Do you still see bread? Yeah. Do you still see wine? Yeah. But it's body and it's blood. So the point of all that is, at its core, we don't disagree with Rome on what's at the Eucharist. At their Eucharist, they have a real presence. Jesus is there in body and blood just as he is at ours. The point we disagree at is, how do we use that? We would say it's all a gift. It comes down from God. They would say, at least formally, and again, this is changing a bit, but they would say, you somehow re-sacrifice Jesus back to the Father. And we could talk for hours about if sacrifice is a good way to talk. I think in some sense it is. Um, but the, at, the, at the end of the day, what they have at their Eucharist is precisely what you have at the Eucharist, body and blood. It would look something like this. Yeah, not yeah, in some sense, not you maybe though, maybe the priest. So here's your here's your Lutheran altar. And what it says is body and blood. And the key is for you. So the action is all this way. It's God to you. Uh, and of course then your you know your Baptist friends would be sort of on this side of the spectrum. They would be down here, which says it's, uh, it's bread and wine. And actually, your Baptist friends, they're probably more works righteous than your Catholic friends. Because what they believe is, you know, we have bread and wine, and guess what? Now we remember Jesus, or, or we go out and proclaim his death. It's up to us. It's not a gift. It's not a sacrament. It's up to us. Yeah, don't take it if you got any sins. I mean, think about this is This is like... This is scarier than this. And then your Catholic friends, they're much like us. They would say body and blood. Um, but what they would do first before they receive it is say, Father, we give you this body and blood back to you. Remember not our sins, but remember the sacrifice of your son Jesus. And then they hand it out to people. Okay? So it's, it's, not, so much, it's not so much different in what's there. It's sort of what you do with it. Their action is first up. And then back down. Yeah. Yeah. No. It would, the ultimate sacrifice they're re-offering is the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. This is part of the problem with being a Lutheran. <laughs> part of the problem is we sort of have... Um, we sort of know all the cliches. We know all the. We, we have some things that we've been taught in confirmation about what Catholics believe. Oh, they sacrificed the mass. But until you actually talk to a Roman Catholic and say, what does that mean? It's it's not fair to sort of misrepresent people. So, and I'm not banging on you. What I'm saying is, even this idea of sacrifice, if you actually ask them what that means, here's what they'll tell you: what was present on Calvary is present on our altar. Guess what Cyril of Jerusalem says. What's on the altar? Whatever was pierced with nails. What does Luther say? What hung on the cross comes to the altar. 
So at its core, you are very, very close. Very close. Now, can you get some old stodgy Catholic priest who doesn't believe that and says, I'm being sacrificed? Yeah, you also get old stodgy Lutheran pastors who say there's no body and blood. Not saying one's better than the other, but I'm saying there are a lot of Lutherans who, Lutheran pastors who don't know what they believe. I, I wouldn't um, because, um, I wouldn't because, well, let me tell you this first. Um, people often come to us who are Roman Catholics and say, I kind of want to join, my wife's a Lutheran, I'm a Catholic, what should I do? Here's what they often say too, but if I become a Lutheran, my grandmother will not let me come to the funeral. I mean, this is a real life question. You get, you get your old Catholic grandma who's thoroughly Italian or thoroughly Irish and they say, Johnny, if you leave the Catholic Church, you are going straight to hell. And you know that if you join the Lutheran Church, your grandma will drop dead tomorrow. Now, am I going to force the guy to leave the Catholic Church? Probably not. Um, but will I tell him he can never commune at our altar? Probably not. Um, what it means is just being an honest person. There are other things that this altar confesses, and by the altar I mean the fullness of the church then, which we would not agree with. Probably we have more in common here than we do here, but there are other things. And so to be an honest person, you stay at the altar that confesses those things. Uh, but sort of at its, at its core, what's present on the altar does not vary from that church to our church. And we do have, I mean, I, can, I won't tell you who, but I, there are a couple people who are, uh, I mean, they're officially members of the Catholic Church, but for whatever reason haven't been able to leave, but who come here on a very regular basis. And part of what the Synod has said is, under pastoral care, there are certain circumstances where that's allowable. And we, with great care of, I mean, I could probably count on my hand maybe five people in five years, but that's a real, that's a live question. And, I, and I'll push it even further to say, in a hundred years, you're not going to say, I'm a Lutheran, you're a Catholic. What you're going to say is, we believe in body and blood, and they don't. I mean, compared to Missouri Synod in a hundred years, I'd be nuts. I mean, I know people love old Missouri. I love old Missouri just as much as everybody else. But denominations are a failing thing. And so what you're going to be defined by is, is it sacrament or non-sacrament? And, that, and that, that's just going to be the live question. So my, my point would be, love your Catholic friends as much as you can because someday you might be in the same church. I mean, that's a, they're just like, what are you going to do, you know? Orthodox would fall right in line sort of with us and with Rome. Um, in fact, I would even, let me, just, let me just ask this question, see if you've heard this before. I think actually Lutherans are sort of someplace in here. Because what Lutherans do believe, what do we sing if you're here Wednesday night, uh, or no, I'm sorry, not Wednesday next, we went back to TLH. If you're here on a Sunday morning, what do we sing right before the, chant, the pastor chants the preface, the Lord be with you? What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will take up the cup of salvation, which is the chalice, and, and call upon the name of the Lord. You ever been to a Lutheran church? This is in the Lutheran hymnal where... You know, a whole family, what do they do? They start at the back and they walk the bread and wine up to the altar. Why? Because your tithing paid for that bread and wine. You ever go to Africa? You'll find people, they don't have any money in their congregation, so how do people tithe? 
they bake the bread or they have a vineyard and they bring the wine. That's their offering. And then what the Lord does is you send the offering up. This is bread and wine, as Rome says. This is very good. We offer you the work of human hands, this bread we offer, this, this saving cup, this wine. Make it the body and blood of your son. That's precisely what we do. At the altar, and you don't hear this because, you know, somebody would get red. But before we, we start the preface, what I always pray is, as you have promised by your spirit's word, may this bread and wine become for us the body and blood of Christ. It's a very old Lutheran prayer, very old Catholic small c prayer. Send your Holy Spirit down and turn these things into bread and wine. So there's something here like you offer up bread and wine, and the Lord sends back down body and blood. Not that different. Here go all the hands. I can see it coming. Yeah. I mean, you sing. we sing the offertory every week. What shall I render to the Lord? And what's funny is then you go home and you're all like, we don't believe we do anything for the Lord. And then you come back on Sunday and you all sing it again. Yes. Yep. Yep, exactly right. But remember, but here's the strange thing. Remember, churches in church history, that's not defined by 10 years or 5 years. Church history is in hundreds of years. So you're right. Did the church go horribly wrong in the 16th century? Yeah, it was unrecognizable as a church. But you have to ask yourself two questions. Have those problems been fixed? To a certain extent, they have. I mean, here's the reason they called the Pope the Antichrist. Not because he's the Pope. Luther says we'll have a Pope. The reason they call the Pope the Antichrist is because the Pope said, if you Lutherans preach the gospel, we'll kill you. So I'll, I'll just press the question. When's the last time the Pope said he'd kill me if I preached the gospel? Okay, that's the reason he was Antichrist. He was killing preachers. So you have to acknowledge the problems for what they were, but acknowledge we don't live in the 16th century anymore. Are there still problems? Yeah, there are. Yeah, he would, well, Holy Father's actually not the, not the, yes, they would say that there are times when in consultation with all the other cardinals and bishops, uh, when the Pope speaks, that would be, that would be truth. Uh, and why they would say that is because the Holy Spirit's never left the church. So the Holy Spirit has been granted to the church to make sure that truth carries on, right? Your word is truth, and, and he even promises truth will carry on through the ages. So they believe that if the Holy Spirit's never left the church, and here's the other thing, if you have the brightest, smartest, most faithful pastors who study and teach and work and pray, that when they make a decision, it's probably the right decision. There's a very strange thing in the Missouri Synod. There was a, I just looking today at my, at my wall, I've got a quote from Jerome, St. Jerome who translated the Bible into Latin. And Jerome says at one point, uh, he says, you all, he's talking to his detractors, you all get mad at me because I'm smart. This is what he's saying. He says, because you all take, uh, you know, no study and no prayer and no intellect to be a calling to holiness. That somehow, if you're not bright, you're more holy than everybody else. You even call yourself disciples of fishermen. He says, but I am not so dull-witted to believe. And he goes on to say, the point is, being bright and working hard, that matters in the church. And I think partly in our own church, we've lost that a bit. It's, you know, who goes, 
if you spend time at a church potluck, you know, you, you work your way up in the bureaucracy of the synod. That's not the way the Catholic Church works. You've got you to realize they have a whole different set of presuppositions. It's not about who everybody likes. It's not about who goes to the potlucks. It's about who works the hardest to do the best for Christ in his church. And part of that is they find the brightest, smartest people, put them all in a room and say, let's pray about this. They pray about it. They address the question. They come up with an answer and say, we actually believe this is what God would have us do. I mean, it's no different than when you all sent me call papers and said, this is a divine call. If that's a divine call, then when a group of bishops sit together and give an answer, that might be a divine answer. Sorry, I'm getting, I'm on my high horse now. And believe me, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that everything is right. I completely understand what, yeah. Uh, uh, yes, I mean, just look at me. I mean... <laughs> Could be, and the and the answer to that would be, uh, the Pope goes to confession every morning. Right, he's he's the best guy for the time, and does he have sins? Yeah, if he didn't, John Paul II apparently. Well, there are people that there are people that think that Jerry Kishnick, the president of our synod, has no sins. <laughs> I mean, I'm not I'm not joking. I'm not, there are people that think that. No, that's not what's taught. No, it's not what's taught. Nope, not at all. Nope. In fact, you remember, the very first thing the Pope does is he goes into the, into the room of sorrows, the room of tears, because he realizes being a mortal human being, he's not up to the task. But this is, I just want to observe, these are all the, the and again, they're not bad. I mean, I was raised on all this. Catholics are bad. They're all going to hell. They're not Christians. I even preached, just so you all know how much I love Luther. Yesterday, I was invited to preach at Concordia River Forest, and guess what the day was? The commemoration of Martin Luther. Now, the most interesting thing to me was, in one hymnal, one of our hymnals, Luther was called a missionary. Now, the most striking thing is, he was called a missionary because they believed the people he was working with weren't Christians. Who was he working with? I mean, think about how upside down that is. Even Luther wouldn't say that. But we have all these presuppositions. The Pope is infallible. He's without sin. I'm not saying those are wrong. I was raised on all those. But that's actually not what they believe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm, not, I'm really not trying to bang on you. I just... This is... No, and this is... Part of the problem is it just... It, it irks me when, when people for 50 or 60 years have been taught all things that just aren't correct. It's not fair to you. I mean, it's kind of like, why have people been deprived of good relationships with their Catholic friends? And, and, and I mean, I was raised thinking they were all going to hell. Mm -hmm. Why? I mean, why did I? I spent 10 years of my life thinking, these are bad people. It makes it much easier. It does. Yeah, exactly. No, you're exactly right. Part of, I mean, denominations are a result of the fall. And you remember, up until, up until like 1050, there was only one church. So I've got a lot of, I got a lot of questions. I know there are a lot of questions. Donna, you've had your hand up. Barb, you had your hand up. Okay, good. All right. You know, uh, that I don't know. In fact, I think it is. Um, no, I know. It's kind of interesting, though, to find out who it goes to. He's got, uh, there's oftentimes a chaplain to what's called the papal household. 
So the Pope and all of his cards, there's a chaplain. So for instance, I just heard there's a, they've invited a young guy out to be the chaplain during Lent, which means every morning, you know, the Pope doesn't get up every morning and preach a sermon. Someone gets up and preaches to him. I know, it would be. I, I think uh, that's often the way it's understood. Here's my, and here would be my answer back. You remember there are two ways of, what she's alluding to is in the Catholic Church, what people often say that they're doing is an unbloody sacrifice. You've heard this before? An unbloody sacrifice, never heard this before? That somehow the priest is offering up an unbloody sacrifice. It's the, they're offering up Jesus on the cross again. Somehow he's being crucified again, this time without pain. No. Nope. And the difference would be, uh, you remember, well, that's out of, n never mind. That'll just be too confusing for you. Yep. It ju yes, exactly right. Yep, agreed. The church changes. And, and the other thing is, there are reasons, so there's conflict in the church, and then confessions are made. By confessions, I mean statements of faith. But those conflicts disappear, or they change, they ebb and they flow. So that means the confession does not apply to every situation. So just because you make a confession about the Pope is the Antichrist, let's take that one because it's the easiest. Just because you make that confession doesn't mean that holds true throughout the rest of history. When the, when the conflict has changed, then there's a different confession. Part of the problem with Lutherans are we're very good at remembering what happened in the 16th century. We're not very good about recognizing that we have our own problems today. You know, I mean, people always want to say, the Pope is the Antichrist, and that's all. It also says in our confessions, right by that, we do not abolish the Mass. We have chanting and incense and candles in the Eucharist. They call it the Mass. We have bishops. Tell the joy group that there are bishops sometimes and see how they respond. I'll tell you what they do. They call the bishop to tell him that I've said that there are bishops. Now think about how ironic that is. This is all the same confession. So if we want to play the confessional rule game, there are other confessions that we've sort of, you have a praise band? I'll tell you what, that's not in the confessions. You have bishop? That is in the confessions. You know, ordination at marriage or sacraments? That is in the confessions. So all those things we've sort of forgotten about. I feel like I'm getting it all out today. This is going well. I'm really trying to be gentle because I, I am not angry at all. I'm just... You know, it's something that sort of gets you going. Go ahead, Barb. Good question. Um, I would say it is probably, there are a couple, di well, okay. Yeah, it would be, it would be sort of, uh, yeah, I mean, the classic definition would be, it's, it's your classic evangelical sort of Protestant church. Um, Usually very faithful people, faithful to their Bible, um, but usually non-sacramental. And I don't know sort of what their take is on baptism and things like that. Whether, I mean, it, yeah, they're just symbols. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yeah. 
Yep, right. What you get out of it, yep, yeah. There are there are sort of there are four, four sort of four categories. There's the Lutheran. There's Roman Catholic. There's sort of your classic Calvinistic, and that's sort of what you know some of these Reformed denominations come out of. And then classic Zwingli, and that would almost be your Baptist Church. Uh, Methodists would be a bit more over here. Presbyterians too. Um, and what, what Calvin often said was Calvin talked in terms of a real presence, but it was a spiritual presence. So what he would say is, and, and here's the, the key difference. Here's the clouds. When Jesus ascended up into the clouds, Calvin and Zwingli and all these other people believe that now he's locked up here in heaven. He can't get out. He's there. He can only be in one place at one time, and he's there. Rome and the Lutherans say, whoa, whoa, whoa. After his resurrection, with his body, he walked through doors. He suddenly appeared to people, which means with his body, he can be anywhere he wants. Yeah, he, yeah, he had a barbecue on the beach, right? He ate fish. So they would say, no, 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 he's not locked up in heaven. He can be wherever he wants to put himself, and he's put himself at altar, pulpit, and font. So Calvin would say there's a spiritual presence. When you eat the host and you drink the wine, Jesus is there. But in some mystical, spiritual, we can feel him, we love him, we know he's here, but it's very spiritual. No body and blood. Uh, and Zwingli, and sort of the Baptist, would be even more, uh, I don't want to say off the wall, but there's no presence at all. He's up in heaven, and the only way, the only reason you go to the Eucharist is, as one guy said last week at a discussion down at Wheaton College, is to proclaim Remember the end of the words of institution? And you proclaim his death until he comes. This is the emphasis, proclaiming. So by eating, you're preaching a sermon to everybody around you. Jesus isn't there. You're not going up to heaven. You're proclaiming to the world that you believe in Jesus. You can't be a preacher. Right. Exactly right. Yeah, right, yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we have this, we have this, like, it's just like, okay, I'm going to get back to my register now. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I went to the register and said, he's chatting with me. I'm like, she's a wacko. Wacko. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right, right. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. This Baptist who was down on this panel, I think, anybody there to hear this? You were there. I found the most striking thing. There was one Baptist on the panel. There was Bruzek. There was a Methodist who was sort of a sacramental Methodist. Yeah, very apologetic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He sounded like a Lutheran, actually. 
and Bruzik sounded like a Baptist, and uh, I mean in tone. In fact, the guy said, Pastor Bruzik, in the middle of this whole thing, he said, I can't believe how upset I'm getting, but you were just so calm and kind and gentle, and you can see him when he has a couple drinks in him. Uh, <laughs> kidding. So the Baptist, but the Baptist was a very young guy, very bright guy, new on the faculty there, but he was adamant. I mean, adamant. There is no body and blood at the Eucharist. And he was adamant, even more, that this in no way saves you. This in no way saves you. And, but he made a very strange comment. The, co the question came up, who can give the Eucharist? And what they were, it was a woman who was saying, I'm going out on a youth trip, and can I take the Eucharist with me? And you know, the Methodist said, only those who are, are ordained or whom the church has put in place, like a deacon or something like that. Pastor Bruzek said, you know, basically that's our same, our same understanding. Um, and then the Baptist said, made an interesting comment, anybody can give the Eucharist. But then he said, but if I believe it was the body and the blood, and if I believe this actually saved you, then I would firmly believe that not everybody could give out the Eucharist. In fact, he said, I would only believe that those who had been ordained could give out the Eucharist. He basically means, if I actually believe there was body and blood there, only a pastor could give it out. It's that holy and that sacred. And I said to him at dinner afterwards, I said, can you come speak to our church? Because there are Lutherans who don't believe that. I mean, just that, that idea alone. I said, I know you believe everything else is different, but the fact that you would say only a pastor can give it out, that he's a steward of the mysteries, is something even Lutherans struggle with. He didn't believe it at all. But if I did, I wouldn't be giving it out. Yes. Yeah, if you just start with the text of Scripture, it's all right there. Right. Was it recorded? Yes, it was recorded. Uh, I could get you. I could get you the person who's in charge. I'm sure they could send. It might even be up on their website. Wheaton College. About fifty. The 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 topic was called "Who's Welcome at the Table." Yeah, who's welcome at the table? I got a couple more questions. Let me go. I'll come back to you, Barbara, in just a second. Go ahead. Well, yeah, my question to you would be, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, is he talking to you or is he talking to his father? I, I think there's a great case to be made for um, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's talking about his father remembering the sacrifice, 
not you going to the Eucharist to remember Jesus. So there's, there's some validity to, this is part of the reason why we elevate the host and the chalice. You consecrate it, the same body and blood that hung on the cross. Remember in the great Wesley hymn, his body still bears the scars. And you pick it up, and you're essentially saying, remember this, Lord. Remember this. And that's the sacrificial language, right? Pick this up. You, you crucified him for us. Remember this now. Yeah. Do you ever say to your husband, remember that I love you? Or remember you said you take the trash out? No, you're right. I understand. But remember, he wants, to, he wants to interact with you like a human being. It's not like he's off sort of ticking things off the map and saying it's all going to be okay and I'm going to move. You're, you're his child. Yeah? Just remember in the Psalms, good point, but in the Psalms even, it says, remember your mercies from of old. Remember how you saved your people. There's always this constant back and forth with people realize they can't do it themselves, so all they can say is, Lord, I'm a damn sinner. Remember what you did to all these, you saved us. Yeah. Exactly right. First he remembers and then you remember. That's always the action, God to you. So you say, remember this. He says, I remember, and you say, thank you very much for remembering. I know you love me. Partly it's, yeah, partly it's, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yep, right. Yep. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> And, but here's the thing, that's, that's exactly right. You do it not only so he remembers, you're right, he doesn't just forget things, but partly by asking for it, it helps you. Just like in, yeah, just like in prayer, all you're saying is, Lord, you've done all these things. Do you think he's forgotten what he's done? Like, Lord, you're the great physician. Oh, geez, thank you very much. I'd forgotten that was one of my names. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. So you say it because it helps you. It helps you. All right, we've got, I got one more. Did, did you have a question? You sure? Okay. I love you, no matter what. We're a little over time, but go ahead. We got one more. No, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, I took, uh, yesterday, you know, the sermons aren't long, but I took four pages before I even mentioned the name Martin Luther. And I did that for a reason. And I said, so what does any of this have to do with Martin Luther? The text was, strangely, the ascension. And I said, if you know anything about Luther, you know that he was a Christ first man. Jesus always got the first word. And you wouldn't be honoring Luther if you talked about Luther right away. Um, and that, and, and I said, the great discovery of the Reformation was that Christ always gets the first word. He always has the first word. But once he has his first word, then you get to say a lot of things. So partly you're right. Anybody who wakes up in the morning and says, by God, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person, probably isn't on the right track. If you wake up in the morning and say, the Lord saved me, and i got a lot of good to do, then you're on the right track. And that's why you can read even James and say, you know, 
uh, if you don't have works, you're dead. Or you can read our Lutheran confessions that say good works are necessary and, and sort of rejoice in those things. One more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. I, I agree, and I would, I, the only, my only response, and it's sort of snarky, I would say, do Lutherans have a problem with doing too many good works or too few good works? You know? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, something, there's something about, I said to the Joy Group on Wednesday, we were talking about the commandments, I said, someone brought up non-Christian denominations or religions, and I said, are they better at following their rules and laws or worse than we are? Well, they're better. Why? Because they think they're getting to heaven by it. I said, you know, we who live in the gospel could use some more following the rules. I agree completely. And at the same time, we could probably learn a little something. <laughs> uh, last thing, and then we need to go. Yeah. What hymn was it? Do you remember? First one? Thee we adore, O hidden Savior? I don't know which one it is. Yeah. Well, he'll come down the same way he left, and then he'll take us... I don't know. Hmm. All right, everybody okay? Nobody call the bishop. If you got problems, come talk to me, okay? I'm really, I'm not trying to like, you know. Yeah, so it's your short psalm. But I do think the psalm is Eucharistic. I think that's where it's pointing us. And obviously, you even have the language of Thanksgiving, which in the scriptures is Eucharistia. So... Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Good. Will you bring it up next week? Because it may not be me, but I'm happy to answer the question when we start. That'd be great. All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.